This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, May 25th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Two men spent a combined 30 years in prison for raping two children. The problem? They were innocent. And the story of how Kennedy Brewer and LaVon Brooks were convicted is spelled out in detail in the new book, The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist, a true story of injustice in the American South by Radley Balco and Tucker Carrington. They detail the story of two doctors who put those men and many more people away for long prison terms with bad science and dubious methods. Who are Stephen Hayne and Michael West? Uh, so Stephen Hayne is uh, the medical examiner who dominated the Mississippi autopsy business for about 20 years. Uh, he's the cadaver king from the title. Um, Hayne did somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 autopsies per year. Uh, by himself uh, from a private morgue, uh, all while holding down uh, two full-time jobs uh, and testifying in court three to five times per week. Um, And just to be clear, the the number of autopsies that he was performing is orders of magnitude more than was recommended. Right. So the professional groups recommend about 250, 275 a year. If you do more than 325, they won't certify you. We talk in the book about a guy named Ralph Erdman, who for a long time was sort of the poster boy for, you know, medical examiners gone wild. Um, and he was doing uh, about 400 uh, per year. Uh, so, again, Hain was doing, you know, 1,500 to, to 2,000. Um, so my, one of my favorite lines in the book is, uh, you know, Hayne could do the number Ralph Erdman did before the uh, magnolias had bloomed. Uh, you know, that was he could he could handle that in a few months. Um, and you know, so he was able to dominate the system because the way that worked is when there was a suspicious death, uh, the coroner, elected coroner, which is usually the local funeral home director, would get together with the prosecutor or the sheriff or the police chief, uh, and they would send the body to a private doctor for autopsy. Uh, and the problem with that system was. That gave them an enormous amount of power over the doctor's opinions. If the doctor came back and said, uh, you know, I, I don't think it happened the way you happen, it, the way you think it happened, or there's just not evidence for me to testify to that, uh, you know, maybe that doctor doesn't get the next autopsy referral. Uh, and over the long haul, uh, you create a system where somebody like Hain is eventually going to, to come into power and dominate the system by telling prosecutors what they want to hear. And that's what happened. And Michael West? Michael West was a uh, clinical dentist in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. But before he became a uh, clinical dentist, he had been in the Air Force. And um, according to him, just sort of randomly one day got chosen to be uh, a forensic uh, uh, Dentist identifier. He was identifying victims of uh, plane crashes through, through their um, their dental records. Exactly. Um, anyway, he came back to Mississippi and was a clinical dentist in Hattiesburg and uh, got hooked up with with Dr. Hain and then got interested in this sort of subdiscipline of forensic odontology, which is slightly different than the dental records issue. And and um, it's different in the sense that he would um, claim to be able to match uh, alleged bite marks, often on victims to a suspect's dentition. Um, And he and Dr. West became friends, actually colleagues, and together during that period of time that Radley mentioned, a couple decades, they worked on dozens of cases, um, wherein in many, many of them, Dr. West uh, matched the dentition, often of the lead suspect in a homicide case, to what he claimed were bite marks, and then the case was solved. So in both of these cases, it seems like courts, uh, and particularly prosecutors and judges, are giving these two guys enormous leeway in terms of drawing conclusions that are then used to uh, exonerate or convict individual people. 
and this this pattern of abuse went on for decades. Right. I, I think judges were giving them leeway. Judges were letting them say whatever they wanted. Uh, prosecutors, I think, in their own way, were sort of not giving them much leeway because I think uh, if the if they came back and told the prosecutor what they didn't want to hear, they risked not getting an extra referral. And in fact, we, we tell a story in the book about uh, somebody who was a state medical examiner, which that office was vacant for most of this period that the book covers. But there were a few people who had that office who were supposed to oversee all of this and were basically all chased out of office, tearing their hair out. Um, but one of them talks has this story where uh, There's a, a woman found dead in her bathtub, and the prosecutor uh, brought the body to the state medical examiner and said, "Here's here's here's the body, and we think she was strangled." And he came back and said, "I can't say that she was strangled. I'm going to have to do more testing." And the prosecutor didn't like that, and so uh, the body was taken out of the state lab in the middle of the night and sent to Dr. Hain, who held no position. Uh, this was the state medical examiner who you know <laughs> the body was taken from. Uh, and concluded that she had been strangled and then called the state medical examiner and said it would be in his best interest if he agreed with Dr. Hain. Uh, so, you know, the, the – yeah, I think the, the system was set up so that the prosecutors – you know, it's supposed to be the, the, the medical examiner has power over what the diagnosis is, right, how the, the cause and manner of death. Um, and I think the way the Mississippi system was set up is it gave really prosecutors and to less extent probably sheriffs and police chiefs the final say over cause of death. And, I mean, we, we can say – with some certainty right now that bite mark analysis is in terms of somewhere between phrenology and nephrology, where does it fit? That's a good question. I mean, I'd say yes, and then I can't answer your question after that. But I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's useless? Is it's, that, is that, can would, you say that? I would say this. If, if you have clear bite marks on human skin, like an arch and then lower arch and then little teeth marks, and your chief suspect doesn't have any teeth, um, that you know, bite mark evidence could be used to exclude that person. Um, yeah, beyond that, that, I don't know. I think that the, the National Academy of Sciences report that came out in 2009 says, I think either in a in a footnote, it may be in the, in the substantive portion of the report, that it's possible that bite mark forensic odontology, bite mark matching could be used to ex exclude people, sort of in the, in the example that Radley gave. Uh, but there's just no scientific basis for inclusion. I think I would grudgingly admit to that that might be the possibility. Well, even at the excluding, I think they said a lot more testing is needed um, and that, that they weren't ready to say even that yet. Uh, oh, so, so it's, it, it's maybe useful to exclude some uh, suspects. Maybe. In, in, in very extreme circumstances, but like the no teeth example. It, it, but Mr. West, Dr. West, had used this to say, this is your guy. Right, and you know, but the the I wanted to bring this up in the question before, which is a good one, and, and that Radley answered, which is one of the things Dr. West candidly said uh, frequently was that there was there was definitely a certain part of his expertise which was subjective, in a, in essence that that uh, it was it was as much art. Uh, as it was science. I'm paraphrasing, but that, that, that essentially is, is what he said, which is, which is striking on a number of levels, one, for its candor, but B, because that's not science. Um, there, there's, there's no way to be able to say um, that, that a, a forensic science discipline is admissible uh, through a particular expert because that expert is better at his art than some other expert. So leaving aside the, the quality of the, of the science here and the quality of being able to uh, tell things about what happened to a body uh, upon examining it after death, how compelling was what they presented to the court in terms of getting convictions? 
It's incredibly compelling. Um, uh, Hain was his style was sort of the uh, the, the quiet, knowledgeable type, uh, and he, you know, he, he he would seem very convincing. We interview a guy in the book who um, uh, was a, a lawyer for families who had uh, lost loved ones in nursing home deaths and would sue nursing homes. And he talked about a case where uh, the family had hired Hain to do the autopsy and he was brought on later and he was deposing Hain. And, um, you know, he knew that his client had died of uh, dehydration. And but during the testimony, Hain, um, he said, he seemed, first he said Hain seemed unprepared. And then as the, the deposition went on, he seemed to sort of become much aware, very much aware of what was going on, who was on whose side. And then by the end of it, he was actually claiming much worse than dehydration. He was claiming that the that the, the victim had, or the client had actually been poisoned to death uh, with uh, this uh, certain kind of medication. And the, the lawyer told me, he said, you know, I knew he was wrong. He's like, but, you know, he was also helping my case and he was sort of in an ethical dilemma here. And he ended up not using him and do, doing the right thing. But he said, you know, one thing he noticed is that Hain is even he's very, very smart. He's a very high, which you might call sort of social IQ. He can read people and can read a room. Uh, and he was found that really dangerous and really pretty scary. Um, West was much more sort of folksy. Um, uh, you know, he would sort of win jurors over by, uh, you know, there's that old saying, uh, you know, that he's a, a dumb person's idea of what a smart person sounds like. Uh, and I think that was kind of, kind of West in a nutshell. Um, he would try to be very down home and folksy and I'm just one of the gang. Uh, but then he would, you know, throw out these kind of technical terms and just sort of casually throw in some Latin that he didn't always pronounce correctly or use in the right context. Uh, but he sounded smart and, uh, you know, he could be juxtaposed with a defense witness from, you know, the East Coast, uh, you know, who could be portrayed as sort of a hired gun, somebody from out of town, whereas West was just a local boy trying to do good. Uh, so they were both very, very convincing and persuasive, I think, in their own ways. And where did they have cases together? Or did when did they did they work on cases? I know that you said that they, they associated with one another and that they had a relationship, but did they work on individual cases together? Yeah, the, the, uh, for, for a period of time, Dr. West was um, a diener, which is a German word for sort of uh, uh, morgue assistant. Um, they have a word for everything. <laughs> and in, in, in Dr. Haynes' operation. Um, so they worked on, on um, pathology work, on autopsy work together. And uh, typically, not, not in every case, but, but typically... Um, the way this would play out, and this is the way it played out in the in the two cases, the Brooks and Brewer cases that start the book off. Um, Dr. Haim, because he was sort of the only game in town, would would get the autopsy referral. And during the course of the autopsy, um, and as I said, Dr. West sometimes was present at these autopsies, not all the time, but sometimes, Dr. Hain would notice um, pattern abrasions or something he suspected might be a bite mark. And so he would ask uh, the coroner or, or law enforcement uh, to bring in an expert um, to check it out. And that expert, of course, was Dr. West. And then Dr. West would come in and um, he would inspect the, the marks um, or the alleged marks. Typically, as in these two cases, he would he would say, indeed, they are bite marks. I need the the dentitions of the suspect or suspects. How did this begin to unravel? I mean, it in a way, it seems like it hasn't yet really truly unraveled for these two guys because there are so many quest now questionable convictions that are those people are still in jail. 
Well, surprisingly, it, 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 it didn't unravel until it began to unravel really until these two exonerations, the, the ones we talk about in the book, the LeVon Brooks and Kennedy Brewer cases, which were cases that were litigated by the Innocence Project in New York. Kennedy Brewer, and, and the way it sort of all fell into place briefly, Kennedy Brewer um, um, had been excluded um, as a contributor to some DNA in the case, um, but the Innocence Project insisted on some additional testing. And that conclusively did two things. It, it eliminated Kennedy Brewer, um, but it also identified at that point um, uh, a male um, who had been present um, and who had deposited uh, sperm cells in the mur rape murder of these little girls. The analyst then circled back to the LeVon Brooks case, which had happened before Brewer's case, did some additional testing, and came up with a DNA profile that matched the profile from the Brewer case. Ended up identifying the name of that person, Justin Albert Johnson, who had been a suspect uh, in both cases. And so it was really at that point, 2008, where there was just sort of dispositive evidence that, A, the two people who had been convicted were not involved in the case, B, that uh, the person who did it was known, identified, arrested, and charged, and then C, that the bite mark evidence that had convicted both of them was utter nonsense. From there began the unraveling. So how many cases are we talking about here that where these guys had a significant uh, footprint, let's say? Well, in terms of cases cases for which there's an actual record, um, thousands. Uh, Hain testified in, you know, again, 75 to 80 percent of the homicide cases in Mississippi over the better part of 20 years. That's that's a that's an incredible number. It's, it's astonishing. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 to adequately sort of assess the damage that these two did uh, would require. It's going to require, you know, it's going to require some public officials with some guts uh, to admit that the system was. I mean, this goes to the very foundation of the criminal justice system in that state, uh, and to a lesser extent, Louisiana, but also the federal courts that were supposed to kind of be overseeing the system. Um, but even that doesn't fully grasp the problem because there are also all the cases in which, for example, a perfectly healthy 18-year-old black kid died in the back of a police car and Hain did the autopsy and determined it was a heart attack or a stroke. Um, there are cases where... You know, a, a poor... So cases that didn't happen. Right. And for those cases, uh, you know, once they determined that there was no foul play, uh, and also lots of cases just sort of poor people that maybe local officials didn't want to bother investigating or didn't want another sort of case that they had to close. Um, for those cases, there's no record. There's no legal database with those, you know, that you can find those cases in. Once they were, once they was determined that this was a death by natural causes or suicide, um, that's it. You know, those cases, you can't find them anymore. Uh, they're lost to history. And, you know, who knows how many of those there are. And, you know, we don't know. So it could be that there were just a few of those. We do know of some of them just from sort of re the reporting and research we've done for the book. But we, there's no way of knowing how many. So in the case of, uh, for example, qualified immunity for uh, people who are uh, police officers or absolute immunity in the case of judges and, and prosecutors, um, you know, it, it seems like there's this going to be this big, heavy lift to try to get courts to appreciate that maybe these are not the best doctrines to have uh, to, to go by. But in the case of bite mark evidence or uh, deferring unduly to someone who is uh, doing autopsies, I, I have to assume there are at least a few more Haynes or Wests out there and who are going to continue to be uh, deferred to by the legal system. 
Right. So the, the with uh, I'll give a quick answer, then you can jump in, Tucker. But the um, uh, just basically to so expert witnesses for the state have qualified immunity. So you have to. It's not enough to show gross negligence. You can't just show that these guys were saying, you know, utter nonsense on the witness stand. You have to say, you have to show, you have to demonstrate that they knew it was utter nonsense and said it anyway. That's really, really difficult to prove, short of, you know, getting them on tape, admitting as much. Um, So Hain and West were sued by Brewer and Brooks, uh, and they lost because of qualified immunity. In fact, the federal appeals court said that, you know, there was, there that it was, a, I can't remember the exact wording they used, but basically they said, you know, there was good evidence of gross negligence in this in, in this case. Um, but because, you know, you either had to show that they knew what they were saying was wrong or you had to show that they had manufactured evidence. Uh, and I actually think there is good evidence. They, they, they've manufactured evidence in several cases, but it, it just wasn't uh, at issue in that particular case. There is another bite mark case where two, two bite mark experts um, were not given qualified immunity, and that was a case uh, where the, the appeals court found that there, you know, that the plaintiff had made, had shown cause that they had manufactured evidence in a case, and uh, we'll see how that one plays out. But, I, I, you know, it depends on what day you ask me. It's a good question. I don't, I don't necessarily quibble at every turn with with qualified immunity. I think there are decent policy reasons to have it. That said, if you're going to have it, I think there has to be a concomitant attention paid at the down, downstream when you're admitting uh, this expert testimony. You know, if you're going to if you're going to say, look, these people can say these things and we're going to give them qualified immunity, we better be absolutely sure as a scientific matter that what they say in this particular case has a basis in sound science. That's what's not that that's the disconnect, right? We're we're, we're granting um, uh, uh, qualified immunity in some of these these instances long after the fact, but we're not doing the work on the front end. So uh, I, I probably I might disagree with that on the, the qualified immunity issue on policy grounds because you guys seem to indicate that the co- courts are not prepared to deal with this issue as this is not quality evidence. That's why I said I'm changeable. You know, it dep- <laughs> depends on, on, okay. on when you're right. asking me. I mean, I was, you know, I, you, I, I hate to in, invent a new kind of immunity, but, you know, I could see protecting people from just sort of negligence, just sort of a, an honest mistake. Uh, but I think when you get to gross negligence, maybe that's where, where we could draw the line, where it's a mistake that, that you know, nobody else should make. Um, you know, the, the comparison I've, I've heard often uh, with prosecutors who, you know, convict the wrong person. Well, maybe they shouldn't go to prison for it, but it should be like the same consequence for a doctor who, you know, accidentally amputates the wrong leg. Um, you know, it should be severe. <laughs> it should be the kind there, – there should there should be a very, very strong disincentive toward uh, this. And so, you know, West, you know, got caught in a sting where he, he uh, matched – a bite mark uh, to a photo or a, de- a dental mold to a photo of a bite mark where the two couldn't have been connected in any way. It was a, an attorney had basically sort of uh, fooled him. And that was in 2000. And West continued to stand by his testimony in other cases afterward. And, you know, once you've been shown to be <laughs> that big of a fraud, uh, I think, you know, uh, maybe you sort of owe it to the people that you've put in prison to go back and revisit some of those old cases and maybe start to question yourself a little bit. And he never did. So well, I'm not never. He, he recent, about a few years ago he did. But So I'm a judge. I have cases like this that come before me a lot. What is my role to uh, make a determination about, you know, I don't know anything about medicine. I, I don't know anything about forensics. 
what's my role here to say this is problematic? And, you know, if I'm skeptical, what do I do as a judge? Well, I think a, a couple things. One, one is um, I would say nothing because, first of all, it should really be the obligation of the advocates to give you the material with which you're going to use to make the decision. In other words, the defense attorney either needs an expert or, um, you know, legal analysis to, to, to um, push whatever his or her point is, and likewise the prosecutor. That said, I think, you know, judges um, don't often get that kind of information from the advocates, and they need to push for it themselves. There was a case, we were talking about this the other night, and this has been done in a couple instances across the country, where judges feel at sea, as Radley had mentioned. But, you know, it's a, it's a forensic accounting issue, for example, complicated, uh, white-collar uh, type uh, um, issue. Uh, judges have gone out and gotten special masters to come in and help a ju- educate a judge on some of these issues. It's in a sort of non-adversarial way. Um, I think those are are two solutions. I, yeah, I, I, I'd go a little more radical even. I think, um, I, I mean, you're advocating a broader skepticism toward evidence that's presented by the advocates in a that's right. in a case. That's right. Yeah, I, I would. I mean, I, I think I think for a judge who has legal training and not scientific training, asking him to evaluate information that's being given him by people who also have legal training and no scientific training, and whose job is to advocate for one side or the other. I'm just not convinced that that's going to lead to sound scientific. Now, now I don't even think Tucker necessarily disagrees with me on this, but or you can say if you do. Um, but uh, I would advocate something even more. I mean, I, I I don't know exactly what yet, but I know some European countries, for example, they have forensic science commissions that report to the court, and it's sort of similar to this kind of sort of master system, except it's kind of a permanent position, and so a, a whatever the equivalent of an appeals court is it a case where there is questionable science, they can appeal to this commission that then determines whether or not this is science. And and the commission is made up of scientists, of people who actually, you know, apply the scientific method to whatever is being said. And I think that's really, I think we need something approaching that. I think we need actual scientists looking at this evidence and determining whether or not it, it passes muster to be sort of given as science in a courtroom. Um, and, you know, even that's, gonna, you know, there are going to be flaws and it's going to be a really difficult thing to do. And it's also just not built into the system as it is. So it would take something radical to kind of implement it. But uh, I just I just don't I just don't think judges uh, asking judges to be the gatekeepers of good and bad in science has worked. And I don't see very many scenarios where it would work. Bradley Balco and Tucker Carrington are authors of The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist, A True Story of Injustice in the American South. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.